Well, please do keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 4. I just want to start by saying I love you guys. Um, that's just for real. Uh, I got to spend a few days this week with a bunch of other pastors uh, talking about teaching and preaching from the Bible. And I got to lead a workshop group with a few other pastors from Illinois and Wisconsin. And I loved spending some time with them. But pretty much any time I go and hang out with other groups, there are two effects. One is I just kind of say, God, thank God for the wider body of Christ and the great people and the great saints out there. And I also come back saying, God, I thank you for the specific brothers and sisters that I get to kind of knit my life together in with around here. And so I come back with kind of a fresh appreciation of you all this week. And that's just the overflow of my heart saying, I love you guys. And I'm happy to be here this Sunday with you. So our passage today is about the testing and temptation of Jesus Christ. There is a Christian hymn that has been sung for several generations, and it speaks of a common human experience. It's the experience of this, tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. And you all would sing it so much better if you were up here on stage right now, right? I know. But but tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, we all know what that feels like, right? Sometimes we find ourselves in a crucible of temptation and trial, maybe when you're a little bit weak already, or maybe when you're isolated and alone, maybe when the voice of shame feels especially suffocating. Maybe when there are just so many responsibilities on your mind all at once. We know that feeling of going through those crucible moments. When we are tempted and tried and sometimes failing. And we know from experience that it is so easy to fall. Some of us know this all too well because... For some of us, this week has been especially trying and tempting for you. Some of us know this by experience because that specific history in your life has such deep roots in your life story. It's probably more accurate by our experience To describe the human experience as tempted, tried, and often failing. But here's the thing. Jesus came to bring redemption for tempted and tried and often failing people like you and me. And in order to change the story, in order to flip that script, in order to save his people from their sins, which is the program that Jesus has set out on, the mission that Jesus has set out on, according to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. In order to change that story, in order to save his people from their sins, he would need to be tempted and tried himself. 
like us and as one of us. And our passage today in Matthew chapter 4 gives us a unique glimpse into what it was like for Jesus to be tempted and tried for us. In a few minutes, we'll come back to an important question, an important kind of theological question. Why do we need to learn about this passage today? What does this mean for us? But first... Let's take a few minutes and just kind of walk through this passage as God has given it to us here in his word. The setting or the context of this story is important. In chapter 3, which we looked at last week, Jesus was baptized. And as he was coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended and rested on him in the visible form of the dove. And then the heavens were open and the voice of the Father came thundering out. This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And now in verse 1 of chapter 4, we read that the Spirit of God who anointed Jesus on the day of His baptism also leads Jesus out into the wilderness. The wilderness was known as a desolate and dangerous place. See, being loved by God and being filled with God's Spirit does not always equal easy assignments, does it? And then in verse 2, we read an obvious but important detail. Look there with me if you would at verse 2. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? What's the word there? You think? (laughs) He's fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then this passage tells us, He's hungry. Now I'm going to slow down on this for one minute because for a certain theological reason, this obvious fact that he got hungry is actually really important. Maybe more important than we might notice at first glance. You see, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is fully God and fully man. Not just God in a human costume. And not just human becoming more and more like God. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. And here's what Matthew 4, 2 makes plain. Those two natures work together in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life story, in such a way that Jesus really gets hungry. And I know... We know that God, as God, cannot get hungry. That would be ridiculous. Just like we know that God, as God, cannot die. Just as we know from James chapter 1 verse 13 that God, as God, cannot be tempted by evil. And yet, 
with respect to his full humanity, Jesus was really tired and hungry. It was not pretend. And with respect to his full humanity, Jesus really could suffer and die. That was not pretend. And with respect to his full humanity, Jesus could really be tempted and tried in every way as we are yet without sin. And it was not pretend. Here's why this is important to notice. The tempting and the testing of Jesus that we read about here in this passage, it was for real. It was as real and as intense as our temptations and as our crucibles of testing, except for this factor. Jesus endured way beyond the levels of temptation that you or I have endured. And I'm going to talk for one second to those of you who are about 35 to 48 years old. There was this game called Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) And Mike Tyson's Punch-Out worked like this. You would play this game as this little tiny boxer dude, and it would start out with these shriveled up little tiny slow boxers that you're opposing on the old school Nintendo system. And the first levels are really easy to, to knock out, but as you get past level one and get up to level two and get up to level three, what happens? The opponents get both bigger and faster. They become more and more challenging, more and more difficult, such that if you're struggling in level one, there's no way you can compete with Mike Tyson way up wherever he is. Does anybody know what level he was? It's just called Mike Tyson level. If you're struggling at level one, you don't understand what it's like to deal with that speed and with those blows. And in a similar way, Jesus was tempted and tried in every way as we are, except he's not in level one version of temptation here. He's fighting Mike Tyson. Straight up. And now verse three tells us, That in this moment of physical weakness, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter comes to meet Jesus out there in the wilderness. Just as the entire nation of Israel was tempted and tested in the wilderness in the days of Moses, now Jesus will be tempted And tested in the wilderness as the true and better Israel. And just as the first Adam was tempted and tried by the ancient foe. So Jesus will be tempted and tried by our ancient foe. As a true and better Adam. Here's the first temptation that the tempter puts before him verse three the tempter came and said to him if you are the son of god that's what the voice from heaven declared if you are the son of god command these stones to become loaves of bread the first temptation is kind of a physical temptation 
Essentially, it goes like this. Jesus, if you are the beloved son of God, why not use your power for personal relief? Jesus, you've fasted now as long as Moses ever fasted. You've fasted now for as long as Elijah ever fasted. Pretty soon, if you don't get something to eat... It's going to be the end physically. And I know you're feeling that hunger. And if you believe your father in heaven loves you, wouldn't he want your desires to be satisfied? So Jesus, if you are the beloved son of God, why not use your power for some personal relief? Turn these stones into bread. It might seem to us like kind of a peculiar temptation for the devil to to begin with, but is downright discouraging to think of how many pastors and Christian leaders have been duped by this very line of temptation. It's discouraging to consider how many pastors and Christian leaders have fallen. And done damage to the reputation of Christ by using their position of authority to embezzle funds or to make themselves rich by stealing money from the Lord's work. But you hear the enemy's deception. After all you've done, if God loves you and has anointed what you're doing, why not a little bit of personal financial relief? It's discouraging to consider how many pastors and Christian leaders have fallen by sexual sins that would seem so obviously hypocritical. And yet you can hear the enemy's line of deception. After all you've done, if you believe the Lord loves you and is blessing what you're doing, why not a little bit of personal sexual relief? We might be more familiar with this line of temptation than we realize. Since God loves you so much, how about going for some personal relief? How does Jesus respond? Verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice, first of all, that Jesus responds in this moment of intense spiritual warfare. How does our Lord respond? He responds with Scripture. These three little words are going to show up over and over in our passage. These three little words, it is written. We'll come back to those words later on. But for now, the point is this. When he was tempted and tried in this moment of particularly intense spiritual opposition, Jesus takes out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice also that Jesus intentionally identifies himself with his people. He doesn't just pull out some random verse of Scripture. 
All three of Jesus' quotations from Scripture in this passage come from one little section of Scripture that apparently he has been meditating on and thinking about during his 40 days of fasting. All of the quotations from Scripture that he pulls out in this particular spiritual battle come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. Here it's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This passage is from Moses reflecting on God's provision for God's people throughout their wilderness wanderings so many years before. In other words, Jesus is finding his place in the story of redemption that has been unfolding for generations And he is intentionally identifying himself with the people of God. You see, maybe Jesus is not just resisting temptation here for the sake of his own personal purity. We'll come back to that as well. But notice also that this temptation, which is offered by the tempter, is not most deeply really about food. We should be clear that Jesus is not opposed to eating food. In fact, you know what Jesus does a lot in the Gospel of Matthew? He eats a lot of food. Jesus eats so much food in the Gospel of Matthew that other religious people accuse him of gluttony. Jesus does not think it's sinful to eat food or To fill your stomach with bread. This test is not most deeply about food. And when it comes to miracles, he will do this exact kind of miracle when it is for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. He'll turn water into wine. He'll take two loaves of bread and five fish and feed 5,000 people. He's not opposed to or incapable of food miracles when they are for the good of others and for the glory of God. But when it comes to using his power for his own personal relief, that's a clear no for Jesus. Why? Because he knows who he is and he knows what his mission is. He is the son of God. He is the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This test is not mainly about food. It's more about his allegiance to the Father's will for his life, even if the Father's will means suffering a little longer. Test number one, Jesus does not fail. Then comes test number two. In verse 5, there's this sudden scene change. The devil is the word that's now used to describe him. It's not a proper name. It's just a title that means something like enemy or adversary. The devil, the enemy, the adversary leads Jesus to the highest peak of the temple in Jerusalem. And if the first temptation was a physical temptation... The second temptation is more of a spiritual temptation, we might say. 
This temptation takes place in the temple. It's a holy and spiritual kind of place. And notice the enemy's tactics in this second temptation. Notice how he goes after Jesus with now his crafty and custom-tailored plan of attack. Verse 5. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, the devil says, for it is written. And then what does the devil start doing? He starts quoting Scripture at Jesus. we got to pause and reflect on this for a minute. You see, in the craftiness of the enemy, in the craftiness of our adversary, we need to realize that the tempter is more than glad to use Bible verses to get us away from the Father's will. Now, we need to be crystal clear. He's using Bible verses wrongly and out of context. You tracking with me? It means he's abusing God's word more than he's using God's word. But the enemy who has a custom-tailored plan of attack against our Lord is willing to even use slivers of Psalm 91 to try to persuade Jesus to get out of the Father's will for his life. If the enemy cannot get Jesus with physical temptations for personal relief, the enemy then tries to shift gears and go for a spiritual temptation. He seems to offer Jesus some kind of shortcut to self-glory. I've got to be honest and say I don't fully understand this temptation. Maybe I just haven't got high enough in Mike Tyson's punch out myself. I don't know. Um, I don't fully understand it, but I think maybe the idea is that if Jesus throws himself down off of this highest point in the temple, everybody down below, all of the worshipers, will see the angels catch him, and they'll see how much he trusts God, and they will recognize him as the Son of God. It's a shortcut to self-glory. Or... Maybe the idea is that if Jesus throws himself down off the temple, he can find an easy way out of this crucible of temptation rather than enduring through suffering to the end for the sake of his people. Whatever the goal is, the mechanics of the enemy's temptation work kind of like this. Create your own crisis by throwing yourself off this building. And then expect God to honor promises for protection. And then others will see you and bring you glory. It's a spiritual temptation for a religious sounding shortcut to self-glory based on uses of Bible verses that are only sort of accurate. And the key phrase there is sort of. So what does Jesus do in this spiritual conflict, in this moment of spiritual warfare, in this moment of temptation when he is confronted by only sort of accurate, which means sort of crooked, teachings of Scripture? What does Jesus do? 
Some of us are really hoping this is where it starts to look like Yoda versus Darth Sidious, and they're just going to start shooting light at each other or something like that, right? But how does Jesus respond to this temptation? He goes right back to Scripture. You see, the best way to confront a crooked teaching and interpretation of Scripture is to set it next to a straight teaching and interpretation of Scripture. And so Jesus, once again, uses those words, It is written. Verse 7, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Relying on the Spirit of God and with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Jesus follows the Father's will for His life, even if the Father's will requires suffering a little longer for the sake of others. Test number two, Jesus does not fail. Now we move on to the third temptation which sounds a lot like a prophetic vision. The devil takes Jesus to a high mountain with a vision of all the kingdoms of the world, with all of their glory, everything that the world has to offer. And the devil, the enemy, the adversary says to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. It's interesting that in verse 9, the devil no longer addresses Jesus as the Son of God. Maybe at this point, he's offering a different path to glory. Somehow separate, somehow separate from Jesus' relationship with his Father. But notice also the deep craftiness of the enemy's custom-tailored temptation for Jesus. The enemy here offers a shortcut toward what Jesus' life mission intends to accomplish. He has a temptation specifically selected to halt Jesus' role in the story of redemption. And that custom-tailored temptation to halt Jesus' role in the story of redemption is to offer a shortcut toward what Jesus came to accomplish. I'll give you the nations, the enemy says. And you know where the book of Matthew is headed. All authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me, Jesus says after the cross and the resurrection. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations. Jesus has his eyes set on redeeming the nations. The devil gets that. And so he's custom designed a temptation for Jesus. With that goal in mind. It's not that the goal of winning the nations is wrong. It's that the pathway toward the goal is wrong. It's not that the goal of winning the nations is wrong. It's that the goal of winning the nations in a way that does not also share and bring glory to the Father is wrong. 
Once more, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But this time Jesus adds something in his rebuke of the enemy. Look with me at verse 10, if you would. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Same words. If we keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, we would hear these words again in Matthew chapter 16. And in that, in that context, Jesus asks a question, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, the disciples say. Some say Elijah. Others say you're like Jeremiah. Others say you're like one of the prophets. Jesus, his next question, but who do you say that I am? After a moment of silence, perhaps Simon Peter steps up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we first read that, we think he's got it. He understands. He figured, he's figured it out. But as the Gospel of Matthew unfolds, we realize he's actually got it only halfway figured out. Because in the very next paragraph in Matthew chapter 16, we read that Jesus from that time, now that they recognize you're the Christ, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and go to Jerusalem and die And on the third day be raised again. And I love the honesty of the New Testament. It it describes how Jesus is explaining these things to his disciples. And Peter comes and says, Jesus' private word. (laughs) It says, Jesus pulls him aside. And it says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Like, you get the irony of this, right? Like, Peter was just like, you're the Christ. You're my Lord. And then Jesus says, I'm going to the cross And Peter says, Lord, I've got some teachings for you. I've got some things to explain to you about how glory works. It doesn't happen through the pathway of the cross. And then Jesus goes on to teach his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he also must take up his cross and follow. But what is Jesus' reply to Peter's rebuke? Get behind me, Satan. Why such fierce words? Because the crown, without the cross, is the way of Satan, not the way of redemption. The crown, without the cross, is the way of Satan, not the way of the gospel. And so coming back to Matthew chapter 4, this was the ultimate temptation that Satan has to offer, the temptation to reach for the crown without first the cross. The temptation to reach for the satisfactions of the crown without first enduring the sufferings of the cross. 
This is the great temptation that many of us face as well. What if you can enjoy the satisfaction of a crown without taking up the cross that the Father has laid before you? This is what Satan is offering Jesus in this moment of intense spiritual conflict. He's offering all the glory that the world has to offer without the suffering. But Jesus will not take it. He sends away the enemy with the authority of his own voice. Be gone, Satan. And in that moment, God unleashes his angels to come and minister to Jesus. Three tests. And Jesus does not fail. See, here's the point that Matthew chapter 4 puts in front of us. The point is this. Jesus was tempted and tried and yet never failing. And do you hear how wonderful and remarkable and amazing that is? I mean, we've got our own life stories of being tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. We've got scriptures full of great leaders from Adam to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and on through the line of the kings in the line of David who were tempted and tried and often badly failing over and over and over, generation after generation, location after location. And then here comes Jesus, who like the first Adam, is tempted by the ancient foe. Yet unlike any human before him, when tested to the highest levels, Jesus is tempted and tried and yet never failing. Now for the theological question, why does that matter for us? I want to kind of point in the direction of three application points based on our theological reflection here. Here, Here's a first application. Since Jesus was tempted and tried and never failing, we can rejoice in his righteousness for us. We talked about this last week. If you rely on your own righteousness before God, do you know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover that your righteousness before God is lacking. And that will lead to guilt. It will lead to shame. It will lead to burden. It will leave you weighed down and discouraged. Better news the gospel brings. If, however, we trust in the perfect, fulfilled righteousness of Jesus Christ for us, do you know what we will find? We will find that it is totally and completely enough for us to rest forevermore in, the God's, in God's smile and love and family embrace of us. Let me make that more personal. If you trust in your own righteousness, do you know what you'll find? You'll find it lacking. 
But if by faith you trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is offered to you as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ, you will find it to be totally enough forevermore. And so we are invited in light of this picture of Jesus who was tempted and tried and yet never failing. We're invited to rejoice in his righteousness, which is now shared with us in our standing before God as our righteousness. The New Testament draws this clear parallel between Adam and Jesus, especially in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And it says at one point in there, as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Listen, this is foundational for becoming a Christian. If you're considering Christianity, let me invite you to this good news. Becoming a Christian is not about storing up enough righteousness of your own. It's about resting wholly in His righteousness for you. And this is vital for the whole pathway of discipleship. Not just the beginning and the entryway and the first steps of baptism. If you are a Christian, if you are following Christ, then this is vital for you to recognize. It's not about you storing up your own righteousness and getting enough of it to be qualified before God. It's about His perfect righteousness for you. So we have these hymns that we sometimes sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Some of you need to realize you are not alone in Satan tempting you in that way. By telling you of your guilt and unworthiness within. You're not alone in facing that kind of temptation. That's why it's written into our hymns. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb. He is my perfect, spotless righteousness. You want to know what taking up the shield of faith sounds like? It sounds like that through your voice. In fact, that hymn that I've kind of been echoing Throughout this message, tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. Do you know the very next line? He, my strength, my victory wins. Listen to this good news. At the end of the day, it's not based on how well you've resisted temptation. Or how skilled you are. Or how righteous you've become. It's based on his finished victory for us. Here's a first application point. Since Jesus was tempted, tried, and never failing, we rejoice in his righteousness for us. Secondly, we can rely on his help in times of need. You ever find yourself feeling help in a moment of weakness? Where can you look for help? Let me just read the Bible to you, okay? Let me just read you the Bible. For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let me pause there before I keep reading and say, don't write yourself out. The four dudes who were just commissioned as elders, this is for you. And for those of you who just tried to write yourself out because you thought that's for elders and I'm not an elder, it's for you. We don't, you don't have a high priest who says, I don't get it. You don't have a high priest who says, what's wrong with you? We have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, that you, that you and I, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in our own times of need. Or maybe more pointedly, Because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. To my weary friends. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is life giving and energizing gospel truth for you today. Not only does it tell you about a righteousness that can be yours for your standing before God, but it tells you about help for you in the trenches in your own moments of need. Listen, there is far more hope than you realize because there really is far more grace to help in your time of need than you realize. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. But He, our sympathetic and merciful and faithful High Priest, He is with us to the end. Since Jesus was tempted and tried and never failing, we can rejoice in His righteousness. We can rely on His help. And i got one more and then I'm sitting down, alright? We can also resist temptation with His example. This is not the most important thing. But it's not not an important thing. Peter, who was there for so much of the life of Christ, reflected back later and said to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And sometimes that will involve Significant, it will involve enduring significant crucibles of trial and temptation and spiritual warfare. Which is why the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in the book of Ephesians, tells them to take up the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm and you're familiar with the passage stand therefore take the helmet of salvation so the enemy can't get in your head it's yours by grace through faith just put it on again today 
Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Christians, let me ask you something. Do you realize that the enemy, our adversary, the devil, has custom-designed strategies against you? Our crafty and ancient foe who sought to hold back Jesus, the Son of God, from playing his role in the story of redemption. The enemy also has custom designed strategies to hold you back in playing your role in following Christ in the story of redemption. A friend of mine who pastors in this area told me his favorite question to give to small groups to talk about is a question that he calls the screw tape question. It's named in honor of C.S. Lewis's fictional demon character named Screw Tape. And the screw tape question for Christian fellowship goes something like this What would be the most strategic way for the enemy to attack you right now? To the degree that you can answer that thoughtfully and honestly, that probably offers you a clue about where you need to be on guard with the shield of faith and with the helmet of the salvation that Christ has won for us and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, along with prayer. Let me ask you to consider the screw tape question today. What would be the most strategic way for the enemy to attack you? And then let me encourage you to get back to the armory of the gospel quickly. To put on the helmet of the salvation, the breastplate of the righteousness that Christ has accomplished for us. To take up the shield of faith. To take out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And to continue forward praying at all times in the Spirit. Why? Because Jesus was tempted and tried and never failing, which is why we can rejoice in His righteousness for us and rely on His help in our own time of need. And why? Along with Him, dressed in the righteousness of Christ and relying on the power of His Spirit working within us, we are equipped to stand firm and resist the devil that he may flee from you not necessarily because he's afraid of you but because he flees at the name of jesus who was tested and tried and never failed not only through that one moment of temptation but all the way to the point of the cross where he won the victory for all his own beloved.